This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Vanessa Chan, author of the novel, The Storm We Made. I really like to play in the gray areas of relationships and humanity because I think oftentimes sort of morality is is a function of circumstance and good and evil and good and bad is not always black and white. We'll be back with Vanessa Chan after these essential words. Okay, here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast. I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this. Just an I, which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world, we have to support what we love, and there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and become a supporter of First Draft today. 
It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. And on to the show. My guest today is Vanessa Chan, author of the novel The Storm We Made, which is a Good Morning America book club pick and a BBC Radio 2 book club pick. Her work has been published in Vogue, Esquire, and other publications. Her short story collection, The Ugliest Babies in the World, is forthcoming. Chan grew up in Malaysia and lives in Brooklyn. Her novel, The Storm We Made, takes place in Malaya in 1945 and focuses on one family whose 15-year-old son, Abel, has disappeared. The youngest daughter is hiding in the basement to prevent being forced into prostitution. And the eldest daughter, Jujubi, works in a tea shop and must serve drunk Japanese soldiers in the midst of a Japanese takeover of the country. The matriarch, Cecily, a decade earlier, was lured into a life of espionage, bringing secrets to a Japanese general because she believed that an Asia for Asians would be better than British colonial rule and that the Japanese had good intentions. We began the interview with Vanessa Chan talking about her fascination with World War II history in Malaysia. You know, I think in the in the letter up front in, in the uh, book, uh, I mentioned that, you know, um, in Malaysia and surrounding areas, like our grandparents, they don't really like to talk about the war very much, actually. Um, so, you know, it was the same in my household. If I were to ask my grandmother, who's a primary um, storyteller in our family, um, about directly about, you know, what happened? What was your life like during the war? She would just tell me to leave her alone, let her get back to her, her day and her chores and tell me to mind my own business, right? Um, which I think is the way a lot of uh, people, you know, dealt with the trauma. They're like, we survived. There's no need to dwell on it. And um, they just sort of, you know, wanted to let it go. But my grandma's also a very chatty woman. And so I realized quite young, actually, because I spent so much time at their house, uh, that if I just like let her live her day, all of these stories would come to me um, in the form of lessons or anecdotes, you know, uh, for example, you know, if I didn't finish my plate, there would be something about, you know, during the war, we had to mix tapioca in with rice to make it last longer because our rations were not enough and we were very hungry. Or, um, you know, uh, one time she told me about, you know, how to avoid getting hit by an overhead airstrike, just almost as like, oh, this is knowledge that you might need to have, which, you know. Hopefully I don't ever in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, but also more joyful things like she, you know, she told me how she learned how to dance, which was um, during the occupation after curfew, they cut a hole in the neighbor's fence so they could go between the houses and they would sneak over. And my grandma took dance lessons over the neighbor's house with a man named Mr. F who taught her how to tango. And so I learned all of these stories and they just sort of like became kind of a part of my psyche. Uh, and then, you know, I never really thought I would do anything with them. They were just something I knew. Uh, but, you know, I lived a couple of different lives. I had a couple of different jobs. And uh, when I was ready to write my novel, these were the stories that kind of became the backdrop of um, my writing. And 
what started as, you know, a short story, maybe a little anecdote here and there became 352 pages, uh, the storm we made. And that's that's what we have. And that's what we have before us. Seems kind of obvious about why people like your grandmother, who is a primary storyteller, wouldn't talk about it. How do you think that impacts a society when people aren't telling stories like that? The only way to have history, um, not just even to learn from it, but to have a history is to have someone telling it, right? Otherwise, it doesn't get written down. Um, No one knows about it. And without knowledge, you know, of true knowledge of, of what happened and true knowledge of the history, there's no way to learn from it. There's no way to not repeat the mistakes. And so earlier, I think you asked me about, uh, you know, the impetus for writing. And a part of it was just, I'm a writer, stories call to me, and I write the stories that call, to, that call me. But also, I think, um, you know, on a more macro level, it's just, I realized, um, as I was writing it, and now now that I'm talking about this book a little bit more, that, you know, stories are just that. They're just stories, um, you know, until you write them down, and that's when they become history. And history really only becomes sort of a generally held truth if people discuss it, people talk about it, if if it becomes, you know, a part of the fabric um, of society and conversation. And so I think it was important to me that this history, as terrible as it was, doesn't die with the generation. Your story takes place in about 1934 and then during World War II, where you're going back between some time periods and you're focusing on one family, the Alcantras. And your main, main character, at least your main storytelling, who we're seeing this through her lens is Cicely. So Cicely was a woman who was, it was very clear in your prose when you were describing her, and it seems a very important part of her character that we can talk about, that she felt very plain, like she wasn't pretty, she was just plain, sort of neutral woman who um, was married and eventually had three children, but about 10 years before the war, she was just kind of feeling plain and bored by her husband. Her husband was pretty high ranking with the British government. Um, who were colonizers there and she wanted something maybe more exciting. So she met this Japanese man named Fujiwara and he was working for the imperialistic government in Japan to take over Malaysia, but it didn't seem like it would be a violent thing. She sold, he sold it to her as an Asia for Asians. Like we shouldn't have these white colonizers here. And because of her boredom and because she really bought into this idea of Asia for Asians, she became a spy for him and took notes from her husband and things from her husband and passed it on to him. And then 10 years later, we see when the Japanese are taking over, it isn't really an Asia for Asians or isn't some equity involved. It is really a takeover and it's violent and young boys are disappearing and there's curfews and it's very dangerous for her family. And her son disappears and she's having all kinds of problems with her younger and older daughter. And she feels very strongly that it's a consequence of retribution of this behavior because she thought she was doing something good and she wasn't. So there's a karmic element and that's how you put it all into a story. So I'm curious how you took these ideas and stories about the war and brought it to this one family. What was important to you? 
when I was, you know, um, writing this novel, also what you described is structurally, there are sort of two timelines and, you know, four points of view, right? There's a three children age between seven and 17 and Cecily who goes between the age of 30 ish to 40 ish um, during the thirties and forties. And, you know, when I was writing, um, I started writing this novel with sort of, you know, three, uh, with the three children, you know, I was writing from the perspective just during the war of these three children kind of living, um, their lives and, you know, things were really tough and, um, you know, they were hungry, um, Little boys were being kidnapped, you know, girls were being taken to uh, become comfort women. And that was the novel that I sort of started writing. Um, And then and then the pandemic happened in real life. Uh, And so my personal circumstances uh, changed. You know, I was in the apartment that I'm in now, but, you know, we couldn't go anywhere because the shelter in place and lockdowns were happening. during this time, my mother passed, uh, my uncle also passed, and I was just really far away from home. I was a person writing about home who couldn't go home, and it just felt very tragic <laughs> to me personally at the time. And so I decided to do an experiment. I decided since I can't go out and be in the world um, I am going to write about a person who gets to go out and be in the world. She gets to go out and be really irresponsible and do um, all sorts of things, run around, um, make choices and decisions, some good, some bad. And uh, I made her a spy because I like to watch quite a lot of like detective and spy TV. And I told myself it'll be an experiment there. You know, it's a multi point of view novel. I can always just take it out. (laughs) And, um, you know, I did this to give myself some joy, some agency through the lens of this character um, who, if you read the novel, um, you know, exists in the 1930s timeline before everything goes uh, to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, she's quite judgmental. She feels um, put upon. She... um, she can be quite funny, you know, things, circumstances can be, are not quite as dire, but uh, um, there are still parties to go to. And I wrote all of that and figured I'd take it out later. And lo and behold, it became, um, (laughs) you know, a central part of the novel. And so your question was, why do I, you know, did I want to focus on a single family? I think I've always been very preoccupied with the idea of ordinary people living through extraordinary times, right? Ordinary people with their ordinary day-to-day things, day-to-day, you know, lives, Um, their loves and their crushes and their pettiness and their judgments and their neighbors. And what happens when you take all of that humanity and put it uh, in a situation where the stakes are like really high, like the second world war or people like us living through, living our regular lives, against the backdrop of, you know, like a global pandemic. I think that was my preoccupation at the time. And um, I think it came through in the novel. So this idea that she really bought into, I'd love to hear more about this idea of Asia for Asians and sort of the dichotomy in her household because her husband Gordon was pretty high up with the British and he really seemed to enjoy his job and feel a lot of allegiance to that. 
And obviously there's, you know, being colonized has its own kind of trauma and energy. And so I'm sure that this idea of Asia for Asians was so incredibly appealing to her. Um, just curious to hear more about that. Yeah, I think the, you know, the the principle, uh, the, the value system, the propaganda of an Asia for Asians was, was quite prevalent uh, at the time. That was the propaganda that the Japanese used uh, to invade and conquer uh, large parts of Asia. The idea that they would come together to unify, um, you know, larger Asia, um, you know, and the, the Eastern world away from European colonizers who had thus far sort of ruled. You know, even in Malaysia at the time, I think there were sympathies on both sides. Uh, the British at the time had colonized the country for about 100 or so years. And so that was a life that people were used to. It came with its own stratifications, uh, you know, its own challenges and hierarchies as all, uh, you know, colonized nations have. But for some people, if they got to work in the government, uh, if they were fairly comfortable, it seemed like it would be enough. And that was, I think, the case I was trying to show with Cecily's husband, Gordon, who works within the administration. And although there is a ceiling to how far he can climb within the administration, because he is a person, a local person, not a, a, an English person, he was perfectly content you know, to sort of kowtow to his European masters. Whereas I think Cecily uh, wondered if there was something else and something more that could happen. But I don't think, you know, because she had no other model for the world, the idea of an Asia for Asians was appealing because it was something different, something new, something that seemed revolutionary at the time. Note that she never once thought of the idea of an independent nation, because that was never a possibility. There was no model for that. You know, given her her discontent just with her own life as you know, a woman who felt herself out of time, uh, a woman who felt that she could be doing more with her life, a woman who wondered if there was more to her children's life than just existing as um, subjects of the British state, and the subjects of empire, she would become, she was particularly susceptible, I think, to this Asia for Asians propaganda that was thrown at her through the character of Fujiwara. And that was a lot of what was happening at the time in, uh, in Asia as well. What about her idea of retribution? It's, it's in the very beginning and she basically thinks it's kind of karmic, but it's also like you get what you deserve and that kind of feeling that she has that I think is like an overlay in the whole novel. This idea that and almost like an acceptance of her, like, OK, during the war, I'm going to maybe lose my children and have and be in dire pain and have my family fall apart. And I deserve this because of what I did. I mean, I think that's that's sort of exactly right. I don't think. In, in, that, in that timeline, in the during the war, she's living with a lot of regret. The, the realization that comes very quickly that that nothing is is as she had hoped that she had planned, and I think it's a terrible thing, you know, to 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 have hoped for something and then be disappointed, but not just be disappointed to watch people who you would consider innocent, your children who don't know what you've done, who have no idea why their family is facing more misfortune than the other families, have to live with the consequences of your actions. 
basically as the book continues, one of the first things that happens, but as you were saying, it goes in different points of view and we see the different points of view throughout is her son, Abel gets snatched, snatched up on the street and goes to kind of like a work camp, um, far away, I think maybe near the border with Thailand where he has to work and build, they're building a railroad for the Japanese, but they're all young boys. You know, I think he's 15 at the time. It was just his birthday and they're treated terribly and abused. And you see this young, vibrant boy get like emotionally and physically destroyed. I mean, no one in the family knew where he was, but we saw him and we saw him get addicted to alcohol. And I'm assuming that that happened. That railroad exists. That railroad is called the Death Railway. It's the Burma Railroad. And uh, it is a very real railroad that was being built by both conscripted labor locally, kidnapped young boys, as well as like European uh, prisoners of war. And I did a fair amount of research into this railroad. Uh, and it was pretty horrifying, some of the, the things that they, they went through. There was a particular section of the railroad called the Hellfire Pass, which actually apparently you can visit today because there's like a monument and, you know, a temple and stuff like that. But um, it's called, called the Hellfire Pass because of the view of uh, emaciated workers building the railroad. They looked like demons from hell. And so it was called the Hellfire Pass. It was a very uh, terrible and tragic uh, war crime. And uh, essentially a concentration camp. And yeah, uh, Abel has to go to this camp and has to find a way to survive and, you know, even make some friendships. But it's a tough story. It was a tough story to tell. It was a tough story to write. It was, it was a, I think, one of the harder things for me personally to sort of put on paper because it was, there was so much truth in the graphic horror that made it terrible to think about that this really happened. So did you have any techniques for yourself, either like how you soothed yourself, for how you wrote it or how you actually like logistically went about writing it that helped because it did have so much trauma in it? I mean, you have, you actually see the the my technique in the structure of the book. The book is structured the way I would want to read it and the way I wanted to write it, where there are multiple points of views so that you don't have to stay so long with, you know, a particular point of view going through a particular uh, terrible trauma and you get to cut away to someone else uh, doing something else somewhere else. And I, as the writer, got to do that as well. That's another reason why, you know, there's an adult point of view in a different timeline because it allowed me to escape elsewhere. I personally didn't want to have my mind in a labor camp for that long. And I didn't think the reader would want that. And, uh, I don't believe in gratuitous violence. I believe in honesty in the writing. I believe that we should tell it as it was, especially with historical fiction. I don't believe in romanticizing uh, the past or or protecting the reader. But I also don't believe in dwelling in a particular assault scene just because. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. So was your process of researching the railroad and the greater war impact 
happening while you were writing? Did you do it before? Is that, could you describe that? Yeah. So some of the stories, I already had them because these were, you know, stories from my family that sort of like, I remembered when I started writing, I didn't realize how much I knew. And I realized, wow, there was a lot coming up. But I think particular to the railroad, um, I knew of such camps. I was aware of the existence of the Burma Railroad um, as a function of history. But I had to research uh, uh, while I was writing to fill in the blanks, like, you know, where did like actual details what was the geography of the railroad what um how many people were there you know what sort of ages were the boys and um how did they make how did they document uh their their lives there there is a scene as you know if you've read the book where there is a boy who is um painting and i won't give away too much for for listeners but he's painting scenes uh uh, from the camp. And all of those things really happened. Uh, there were, you know, prisoners of war who were painting, sketching and drawing um, on the walls and everywhere to make a record of their lives. And uh, those were the things that I researched and looked up and uh, was able to build, I think, uh, that world that would have been otherwise unfamiliar to me. It's always amazing to me that in even in the darkest of circumstances, the people still can find a sense of joy. I mean, these boys, I mean, it was mostly towards the end when things were breaking down for the Japanese, but they found a way to find their own joy amidst all this terror. I think that's right. Um, I, I think where there are people, especially if there are lots of people, there is community and community uh, finds a way to carve out hope for itself. And I think that's what they were trying to do. At least that's what I was trying to show they were trying to do. So while Abel's there, the two girls who are Jasmine and Jujube, they are at home. Jujube's older and Jasmine's about eight years old. And Jujube works in a tea shop. And so she, mm-hmm. and it's scary for them to leave their house. It's scary for them to go out and, but she goes to the tea house. She's making some money. I mean, they're still like under rationing and not, you know, making a lot of food, but it helps that she works. And she is, has to be an adult in that situation. And she befriends a Japanese man at the cafe who is a teacher. And it's a really interesting part of the book because he's not as far as we know, affiliated with the imperialist takeover. He's just there teaching, but she never knows how much to trust him. But I think that's an interesting relationship and also an interesting point that like not everybody who comes into a country from a certain other country represents the military. So I'm curious about your creation of that relationship. That relationship was actually something, or at least the the framing, you know, that uh, he's a civilian who, for all intents and purposes, is is good, right? You know, uh, even though uh, Juju can't figure out how to trust him because she, in her mind, has placed all of the Japanese in Malaya at the time into a specific occupier bucket. Um, but, you know, my grandmother was always very careful 
uh, to say that to delineate the difference between the soldiers in the Imperial Army and the civilians who were uh, there at the time, who were just who had jobs to do. And she was always very careful to say that the soldiers were cruel. Um, they were the ones who were scary. But, you know, um, she maintained uh into after the war friendships with a lot of Japanese civilians that she met uh, while they were in Malaya as teachers, as administrators, as workers in the railway. And uh, I think it was important uh, for me to represent that, that um, that the world is not black and white and that, uh, that, um, you know, Evil is not a monolith and it doesn't come, you know, it, it's not in the case of this book, capital J Japan, you know, not everyone who is from Japan is going to be evil because that doesn't make any sense. That's not how the world works. That's not how history worked either. It's still individual connections yeah. throughout the book. I mean, even Fujiwara and Sicily, like it's not all black and white there either. No, I, and maybe that's just my personal preoccupation. I really like to play in the gray areas of relationships and humanity, because I think oftentimes sort of morality is is a function of circumstance and good and evil and good and bad is not always black and white. And I just wanted to reflect that, that, you know, I think most of the point of view characters are not a hundred percent pure. I think all of them are not 100% pure um, and good. And they all make decisions that would cause you to raise an eyebrow. But again, we, we, don't, we don't live in their circumstances. So I wanted, I wanted to, to show that. So the last daughter, Jasmine, she's eight. And we were talking about Juju B, who's older and has to sometimes be the adult. And Jasmine mm-hmm. is, I mean, they basically have to hide her. Like she can't go out. It's too dangerous for her. And it's better for her to look like a little boy, really, because girls her age at eight can get end up being prostitutes. So she's kind of hidden and she has like an altercation with her older sister where mm-hmm. she just wants to be out in the world and Jujube won't let her. And that altercation had big ramifications. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just interesting like it's sort of a parental moment, but it's also a sibling moment. And one of those moments where you think you're doing what's best and she probably was doing what's best, but if it doesn't hit the younger child in the right way, it can sever potentially the relationship forever. And that was a really powerful moment. And wondering if you thought about writing that as that sort of moment, or maybe it just came out that way. A bit of both, I think, because I have siblings and I have family and often, you know, what's best for for, you know, for your the, the family member that whatever family member you're dealing with at the time. But often as in family, the problem with being family is even if you know what's right, your delivery is often not great because you're so close to someone you it's quite hard to be impartial or to be calm and you just yell at them, right? That is family. You just, you know, you're right. You have to say the thing. And there's like not a lot of self-control there, emotional self-control in the way you would with someone you maybe cared less about. And so that seems like a very natural thing for me to write where, you know, the older sister knows what's right. She knows she needs to 
you know, keep her younger sister safe and she needs to punish her for her this transgression where she snuck out. Uh, but the younger sister, you know, just receives that as betrayal uh, and a scolding and and meanness. And uh, they're both not wrong. But that's just the nature of family, I think. That was not hard for me to write because I know family. <laughs> you know, we started off talking about your grandma and her not telling stories. And then finally, you know, you kind of just uh, hearing it and taking it in via osmosis. I'm curious about two things. First thing is, did writing this book make you look differently at the country of your birth? That is a great question that no one has ever asked me before. I think I think that might be right. I think that um, you know I think I've always known I love Malaysia as as a as a as a you know the place I was born and uh, in many ways still kind of a home. Um, it's very idiosyncratic. It's it's wonderful and deranged and um, friendly and inefficient. It's just you know. It's all of the things. It's, it's it's a series of contradictions. And I think writing this book helped me know it a little bit better, if that makes sense. I always, you know, I guess all these stories always sort of lived in my mind. I also had some sense of the history, but not a whole lot. But having to organize it and um, put it together in a narrative, I think, just helped me get to know Malaysia better and maybe understand why uh, it's so idiosyncratic. Malaysia to me is like that family member that I said that you love very much, that you sometimes yell at. Like Malaysia is like that. It's like, why are you like this? Like, why does it have to be so hard all the time? But also how fun it is and how great the food and how I love the weather and miss it. So you had mentioned earlier also the second part of this was um, that your grandma was the primary storyteller in your family and she's no longer... In, in the world, are you now the primary storyteller? In oh, yes and no. So my grandmother was the primary storyteller of this time frame, but uh, my family is a bunch of drama queens and storytellers. Everybody's always telling stories all at the same time and gossiping and very loudly shrieking about all of their stories. So everybody is a storyteller. Some of it is true. But some of it is not. Um, and it's always all at the same time. It's probably why I wrote like multi-point of views. Um, because it's always just a bunch of information coming at you. So I guess I'm a formal storyteller because, you know, I have a novel, like a book in the world, but uh, I don't think that they uh, would agree that I am the storyteller because I'm sure every single one of them would uh, claim that they are. Do you think that Malaysia will be a topic or at least a setting in more books? Absolutely. Malaysia is uh, is a huge preoccupation for me. It is a setting for most of my short stories. It is a setting for this novel. Um, it's probably going to be a setting for a future novel as well. Uh, I don't think I will necessarily write that far into history anymore. I think I'll probably be a little bit more contemporary uh, or a little, you know, a little less far into the past. Uh, but yeah, no, Malaysia continues to preoccupy me and uh, we're, we're going to stay there for a bit. Right. Do you want to talk a little bit about the title? Uh, I can. I will. I'll tell you both the um, the <laughs> the good answer, the correct answer, and also how, how the title came about is really sort of very practical and unromantic. 
the title is I've come to I've come to love this title because you know it's it's uh it's both literal because you know Malaysia is a stormy country there are a lot of actual physical storms that happen in the book there's a lot of rain it's a rainy nation people are always sort of damp um but also it's metaphorical because you know, is the storm inside? Is the storm the war? Um, and who's we, right? Is it the whole family? Is it Cecily? Is it Cecily and Fujiwara? Um, it's also just a very sort of memorable and uh, um, wonderful title. And I think the the image on the cover is really wonderful as well, because it's quite literally a person who is a storm, who is in motion. And so I love that. But um, the inception of the title is quite unromantic, but I think it makes sense for this podcast being called First Draft Podcast. Um, I could never figure out a title for this novel. I'm fine. I've titled, I've written short stories, I've written other things, and generally I'm able to find a title pretty easily. But because this novel covered so many things, so many characters, I was never, ever able to find a title. And so we were me and my agents were literally ready to go on submission and the novel was still called novel novel underscore final uh, and I asked I was like you know maybe we can just go out on submission with that title and the editor can help us come up with a with a title later and my agents were like absolutely not are you insane and so we brainstormed um for titles and we came up with one, which I loved, which was not the story we made. It was something else. Um, and I was like, great, let's put it in. It was kind of alliterative. It was sort of romantic. I, I quite liked it. About 12 hours before we were supposed to go on submission, a novel with that almost, almost exact title, like one word difference, does a cover reveal. And my agents are like, well... That's out. I'm like, oh, you know, my book comes out in so in many years. It'll be fine. And they were like, nope, absolutely not. And so we came up with the storm we made about a couple hours before they emailed this, this manuscript out to editors. And one of my agents came up with it. We were like, it's great. We'll change it later because that's what happens in the publication process. It's totally fine. And we sent it out without much of a second thought. And then it stuck. My editor loved it. It sold in a bunch of different countries. All the countries seemed to like it. And uh, now I love it. But again, it was a very unromantic progeny, <laughs> um, orig or origin story. I think, too, sometimes inspiration and like looking at something out of the periphery comes up with something like last minute much better than like thinking and like having your hot tea next to you and like your cozy blanket to be like, okay, I'm going to brainstorm from one to two. You know, sometimes it's like that jolt that works better. You can't plan for it, but also I think sometimes it has to be someone who, who isn't quite so close to it. Right. I'd spend so many years laboring over every plot point that I was almost too close to it. And I couldn't, I couldn't think of one. It was so much pressure to think of one phrase a one you know series of words that would encompass the whole thing and I, I just couldn't come up with anything and uh you know they at that point read it a few times but you know they didn't write it so I think they were they were the right people to come up with uh with something for me 
We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? I am happy to. I am going to read the second sentence of We Love You, Crispina, which is a story by the author Jenny Zhang from her collection, Sour Heart. It is a sentence. It's a very long one. And uh, it's really something. It's really something. All right, here we go. Back then, if one of us had to take a dump, we would try to hold it in and run across the street to the bathroom at the Amoco station, which was often slippery from the neighborhood hoodlums who used it and sprayed their pee everywhere. And if more than one of us felt the stirrings of a major shit declaring its intention to see the world beyond our buttholes, then we were in trouble because it meant someone had to use our perpetually clogged toilet, which wasn't capable of handling anything more than mice pellets, and we would have to dip into our supply of old toothbrushes and chopsticks to mash our king-sized shits into smaller pieces since we were too poor and too irresponsible back then to afford even a toilet plunger. And though my mom and dad had put it in their list of things we need to buy immediately or else we've lost all human dignity, somehow at the end of every month, we'd be $100 short and couldn't pay the gas bill in full, or we'd owe $20 to a friend here and 10 to a friend there and so on, until it all got so messy that I felt there was no way to really account for our woes, though secretly I blame myself for instigating all of our downward spirals, like the time I asked my father if he would buy me an ice cream cone with sprinkles, which made him realize I'd been waiting all month to ask, and he felt so sorry for me that he decided to buy me not only an ice cream with sprinkles, but a real rhinestone anklet that sure as hell was not on the list of things we need to buy immediately or else we've lost all human dignity. And that was the sort of rhythm my family fell into, disastrous and depressing in our inability to get ahead. And that was why we were never able to afford a toilet plunger and why our butts were punished so severely in those years when it wasn't as simple as, hey, I'm going to take a crap now, see you in 30 seconds. It was more like I wasn't going to take a crap now, where's my coat and shoes and also that shorter scarf, scarf that won't dangle its way into the toilet. And where's the extra toilet paper in case the guy forgot to stop the bathroom again? He always forgot. And later, when we finally moved, when we finally got the hell out of there, it still wasn't simple either. But at least we could take shits at our own convenience. And that was nothing to forget about or diminish. Do you want to tell me more about why you chose that? I love, I mean, obviously it's very scatological, but I just love how, um, there's no protection of the reader. It just jumps right in. It's obviously incredibly poetic despite its content because it's a single sentence, but you learn so much about this world in you know a single paragraph length sentence. And I think it was one of those, you know, Jenny's collection and this, this book in general, sort of those books that gave me permission uh, to kind of write the way I do, to inhabit very bodily, um, to let the reader feel and see everything, even the parts that are just um, gross. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you liked? I guess I'll just read like the first page because I didn't write this beginning uh, until later. Uh, We added it. This was not the first, the first chapter of the book that exists right now is actually not the first chapter. And it was a significant edit that we did. Chapter one, Cecily. Bintang, Kuala Lumpur, February 1945, Japanese-occupied Malaya. 
teenage boys had begun to disappear. The first boy Cecily heard of was one of the Chin brothers, the middle of five hulking boys with narrow foreheads and broad shoulders. They were Boon Hok, Boon Lam, Boon Kong, Boon Hee, and Boon Wai. But their mother called them all a Boon, and it was up to the boys to know which one she was calling for. Throughout British rule, the Chin boys were known for being rich and cruel. It was common to see them crowding in a circle behind the Chin's gaudy brown and gold house. They'd be standing over a servant, one of the boys with a switch in his hand, and all of the boys with glints of excitement in their eyes as the switch made contact with the servant's skin. When the Japanese arrived before Christmas 1941, the boys were defiant. They glared at the patrolling Kanpatai soldiers, spat at the ones who chose to approach. It was the middle boy, Boon Kong, who disappeared, just vanished one day as though he never existed. Just like that, the five Chin brothers were four. Do you want to say anything more about that? You know, like I mentioned, it this wasn't the uh, initial beginning of the novel. Um, the novel started in a very different place. And um, through the process of editing, we realized that we needed to start the novel um, from the perspective of Cecily, who is the, uh, the, the mother who is a spy, the sort of central character around which everything revol revolves. And sort of cinematically from top, right? This chapter, as you read it, you realize it's sort of, it, it's like one of those um, spotlights, you know, when you when you watch a movie and it starts in the sky and then it zooms and zooms and zooms, it gets closer and closer to like a neighborhood, a cluster of houses, and finally it goes into one house, into one family. So that's what I strive to do with, I think, this new beginning, new, um, which I didn't initially write, where it starts with, like the larger neighborhood and everything that's going on before it kind of zooms into Cecily and her family. And then the novel really begins. Where do you write? Uh, I write uh, at my desk at home, which is where I am right now. Um, usually in pajamas or um, a grubby torn bathrobe. I'm not one of those glamorous writers that dresses beautifully and goes to the coffee shop to write or, or, you know, someone who, uh, who can be photographed writing because I just usually look like crap. Um, and, uh, have like a bird's nest tangle in my hair and, and just look generally unshowered. I'm not, it's not a glamorous process for me. Let's put it that way. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I like really love TV. Uh, I am much less discerning in my television taste than I am in my reading taste, probably because I don't write for TV and so have no like knowledge of how things work. And so I will watch anything. I will watch prestige television, period dramas, first responder television, shows about firefighters, like soap operas, like literally anything. I watch so much television. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, that's an interesting question because the answer is different for this novel than it was generally. So generally I have like a writing group um, with the, you know, two or so close friends and they're the ones who usually see my work first. But for this novel in particular, um, I started writing it during the pandemic towards the end of my mother's long illness before she passed. And I used to post little snippets on Instagram stories uh, um, like, I don't know, just, I would just feel inspired. I'd post it and then I'd be ashamed and take it down like 30 minutes later. But my mother actually learned how to screenshot and, um, she would 
grab, she would go on Instagram stories, screenshot it, and then enlarge it and read it and then call me and give me feedback. Um, not always very helpful, but it was really cute. It was a really cute way um, of us sort of keeping in touch um, when I was very early days of writing this book. How have you dealt with rejection? Honestly, I think I've lived like long enough that I have been rejected in so many different ways, like in, in jobs, in love, in life. And I think I just sort of, I don't have a particular coping mechanism. I take a deep breath and just, you know, swallow really hard and kind of keep going. I think it also really helps that I have a, a community of uh, friends and, you know, friends who are writers around me who have been through uh, similar things, the similar parts in the process, and we sort of turn to each other. But um, I think rejection is just a part of life. And I just take a breath. And what is your favorite word? It's actually thinking really hard about this one. I don't know if I have a favorite word, but um, when I uh, was writing this manuscript for submission, my agents told me that I used the word murmur 26 times. And they told me um, that I only get five murmurs, so I had to cut out 21 of them. <laughs> and I guess for some reason, she murmured, he murmured is like my favorite dialogue tag, which makes no sense, but that's what it is. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much for having me. If you like today's show with Vanessa Chan, author of the novel, The Storm We Made, check out my interview with Nicole Dennis-Ben, author of the novel, Here Comes the Sun. We talked about the sacrifices women make in Jamaican society, the sexualization of young girls, and being colonized by the British and the impacts of that rule. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 440 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jill McCorkle, Diane Seuss, and Kava Akbar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.